This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. Now, today in this show, we'll be traversing this psychological terrain from mindfulness to self-compassion and then taking a dip into a pool of ethics, a pool about medical confidentiality. Hmm. Now, fans of the show will know Dr. Eva Green. For the rare listener who hasn't heard her, Eva is a mental health clinician who works for a very large hospital in central Melbourne, near a park, helipad. Um, Eva is super passionate about the environment and is our go-to person for climate change. Today, though, she won't be talking about trees or temperature, but how we can take it easy on ourselves, a bit of self-compassion. Healthcare workers especially are really, really, really hard on themselves. Eva will tell us how we can lighten up. Now, Junior is a doctor. He's also a freshly minted psychiatrist and probably the only one at his hospital who rides a bike bigger than 1,000 cc's, I reckon. I suspect he also has a penchant for the leather that goes with uh, riding uh, a big motorbike, but maybe we'll ask him about that later. Today, Junior will be speaking with us about the complex area of confidentiality of patient notes. Very, very interesting and very topical uh, area. Um, Dr. Elise Ballew was last on the show about mm, 10 years ago. Since that time, she's decided to do a load of different things like training in psychiatry and start up the phenomenally successful program called Mindful in May. Elise will be chatting with us about Mindful in May and mindfulness generally. Good morning, Eva Green. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. Um, Happy Easter. Thank you so much. We've never been on a... Oh, we've been on a show maybe once. Maybe once. Yeah. So, and also I didn't recognise you when you walked in. <laughs> keep changing. Keep changing my hair. Sorry about that. <laughs> and uh, Junior, good to have you back on the show, man. Good morning. Always a pleasure. Did you ride the bike in or...? Uh, I had um, my 0.1 horsepower, human-powered push bike today. <laughs> Hey, look, there's been lots happening in the news. I want to get straight into it. Eva, some stuff about uh, air quality? Yeah. Yeah, air pollution. So the Guardian, uh, amongst some other uh, newspapers, reported on this. Um, On the 2nd of April, this article's uh, by Oliver Millman, uh, who was talking about how the health toll of air pollution actually cost Australia around $24 billion a year. $24 billion. That's a lot of money. And just this week, there was a release of the annual federal government's National Pollution Inventory. And over the past five years, industry has actually doubled doubled its emissions of a fine particle that I've never heard of before yeah. called PM10. Sounds what is a bit PM mysterious. I've got no particulate idea. Particular matter, probably. Pa- particular matter, thank you. And how do they figure out, I mean, I'm not trying to be a naysayer or a disputer, but how do they figure out $24 billion? Oh. Look, don't ask. Don't that? ask me. Go to the reports. There's some excellent health reports by the Climate and Health Alliance, and they break down how uh, I'm pretty sure how to how they come to these huge numbers. Because and where would I find that report on on the internet? So the Climate, Climate and Health Alliance C A H A C A H A dot org. Go to that. They'll have this yeah. report we, there. We can pop it on the on the yeah. Facebook page. Uh, but the the interesting or the important thing for the health uh, industry is that this particle is linked to respiratory. Diseases like asthma, bronchitis, and 
that Environment Justice Australia, which is another organisation, has actually said that this is the highest, that, that the 10 highest admitting mines increase their PM10 output by between 48% and 1,030% over the past five years. And I guess the... the the trouble is that this is this is going unrecognised, uh, and we're not linking this level of air pollution to our health and the cost of our health. Not to mention the the distress and the individuals actually experiencing their health problems. Now, how how come we have never heard of PM ten before? Why, why, why is this? Why do you think? <laughs> Conspiracy, is that what you're trying to say? But is it like it's just not getting a lot of public notice because there are other things going on? or Perhaps that's yeah. one reason. And perhaps there's just uh, why aren't we talking about air pollution more and true, the, the various true, true. you know links between air pollution and our health. So if I, I'm going to go, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to go home and type in PM10 and I'll try sure. and learn about it because it's important. Um, now, uh, Junior... Yes. I'm looking at you. See, so you you have a cool head. You are just you're sitting here absorbing it all, man. Unusually, it's neatly brushed this morning. Beautiful stuff. I hope. Hey, I'm looking at you because you're, uh, I think, one of the youngest members of the team, and you're pr- you're much more au fait with uh, social media and uh, smartphones and so forth. There was a fascinating article in today's Sunday Age, page fifteen. Um, about the use of smartphones and how smartphones may be linked to the decline in sexual activity amongst the average couple. Do you know this? Have you heard about this before? No, I haven't. I haven't come across that article either. Well, so there's a Professor Spiegelhalter. Um, he is uh, a statistician at Cambridge University, and there has, he has said there's been a sharp decline in the frequency of sexual activity between couples, and this is in UK couples, it used to be four times a month and now it is three times a month and one of the issue one of the reasons for that he postulates is the use of smartphones um and it's not uh, i think one of the and this this talks to about a broader issue about smartphone use that what do you reckon i think people see smartphones like i get anxious when my phone's not near me and in the article they mentioned another researcher who says that people see smartphones as an extension of themselves. So when it's not near them, they feel a little bit antsy. What do you reckon? I think it makes good sense. Um, I think uh, having a smartphone um, effectively serves as a constant source of anxiety and distraction. Um, anxiety because uh, you could get notified, you could get called, you could yeah, get, yeah. Um, you know, a WhatsApp message. Um, you could get, you know, there's a, a Facebook Messenger message. Is you know about ten different messaging apps out there, and it's constantly on the back of your mind that you could, you could get notified at some stage. But I think in terms of how it detracts from intimacy, um, it makes a lot of sense to me because um, you're effectively pulling couples away from their um, face-to-face time mm. rather than looking at each other and there's a lot of studies done mm. as you would know um, about uh, the intimacy one develops just from making eye contact looking at each other's facial features smiling in particular and if you're looking at just a fluorescent screen you're not really doing that bonding i, I was just going to add this this 
term of anxiety about getting a notification or about getting a call, what do we actually think that is? Because anxiety implies that there's some kind of anticipatory threat, uh, that we're worried about something terrible happening. What are we actually talking about here? I can answer to that. Um, not now anymore, but uh, the last couple of years I was in a um, position of um, greater power, one could say. I was looking after about, um, I was representing and leading about um, 30 plus trainees at a um, major metropolitan hospital. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one day, I think this was about 18 months ago, one day I left my phone at home, the only one day in my life that I did this. <laughs> and the whole day I was constantly on edge. I could not relax. I was always thinking, catastrophizing, mm-hmm. you know, what have I got contacted? What if someone called, you know, called in sick for their shift tonight? What if the boss wanted to call me? How do I then upmanage? Mm-hmm. I would get in trouble. I wasn't contactable. Mm-hmm. And the sky was literally falling on my head before I even left the house. And when you got home, so what that, happened? Nothing, no, no nothing happened. <laughs> nothing <laughs> happened. Um, everybody survived. Um, the world did not end. There was no apocalypse. I reckon... So is that the is that the mobile's fault, or is is that you know our tendency to catastrophize and to but like you, like um, we were saying that the phone is this extension of ourselves that we've attributed. Perhaps it's not the phone; it's the way we're using the phone that becomes the, the problem here. I, I agree. I agree, and it's a, it, and it sort of fosters a sense of um, reliance mm. that um, is perhaps um, exaggerated. I, I reckon, though, that another part of it is um, that the phone. Um, it creates a portal to the outside world. So here, and again, they talk about in this article, but the boundaries of what is private and what is intimate and what is everything outside. I mean, in the old days, you, uh, you know, if you were uncontactable, that meant you could savour that moment. Nowadays, the entire world can reach you in your bed, you know, from anywhere. And that's got to detract from a sense of intimacy. And I think that also is what puts you on edge, that at any time anybody anywhere can get hold of you and want something from you or want a decision or want a response. And how can you be intimate with the person who you, whose eyes you're trying to stare into when, you know, any second, boom. The phone will ring. Yeah. yeah. And then it gets answered. So, so what do you reckon? Do you reckon we need, like, um, uh, like to turn our phones off for a period of time, uh, you know, pick a time and we could, you know, have at least, you know, have your landline or divert it or something. Because I think there is this, this phenomenon that we are being too accessible at times. I think so. I think, um. A phone off day? Um, leave your phone at home day, like you did. We could call it the junior day. Leave your phone at that's home. That's right. Yes. It's like the, leave the, the car at home. You know, you have um, you know World Nurses Day, um, World <laughs> Suicide Day. Um, you have you know even the Queen's birthday we celebrate. Maybe we should have a, a national holiday where everyone just has their phones off. You're for right. That there day. is an absolutely there's a day for everything. But I don't know if one day is going to be enough. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But I think we should be putting it into people's minds. Now we've got a huge show planned. We should rock on with it. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We're speaking with Junior about confidentiality and patient notes. Ooh, I love this topic. Yeah, um, it's, it's a topical um, discussion and, and a consideration to have. I think, um, as we all know, um, this Tuesday passed, there was the um, tragic uh, incident of um, the German wings um, air uh, disaster um, over the French Alps and um, very sadly 150 people um, all the passengers lost their lives and um, I know an investigation is continuing um, but uh, along um, 
the uh, course of the reports over the ensuing days. There was some discussion about whether there should be mandatory disclosure of um, health records um, for pilots hmm. um, by assessing medical practitioners. In fact, and there have been. In fact, there was a. There has been a. There's been a lot of email traffic, a lot of letters to the Age and other newspapers about absolutely. this Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So where the situation stands at the moment is, according to um, the Federal Aviation Administration. Um, Pilots receive a physical examination once a year. Um, if they turn over 40, they get the examination twice a year. I was actually speaking to a commercial um, pilot um, quite by chance uh, a couple of days ago, and um, something I did not know is once they turn 65, commercial pilots have to retire. They're not allowed to work a day over the age of 65. Really? What's the um, reason for that? Regardless of how compassmentous you are. So, again, it's about physical and psychological um, integrity, I suppose. I, I think, um, you know, it's a, it's a um, point of a dispute. You'd want a good pension plan if you know that the day you turn 65, no more flying for commercial airlines anyway. Yes. And, and uh, this um, pilot I was speaking to, he'd sort of worked himself up towards it. And, uh, you know, the day he turned 65, he quite, quite matter-of-factly, he just decided he knew, he planned for a year or two beforehand, okay, Cool. Change, time to change tack. I'm doing something else with my life now. What's he doing? Oh, um, he's uh, retiring on the Gold Coast. <laughs> I'd be choosing that. You know, sure. Work, retire then, on Gold Coast? I'd be going to the Gold Coast. Then by jetting the, around the world. By the way, I should just uh, introduce uh, Dr. Elise has uh, uh, come into the studio. Hello, Elise. Hi, Rob. Hi. Nice to have you in the studio. Great to be here. We will be talking with you in a minute about um, mindfulness in May. Um, but uh, in the, at the, right at the moment, we're just talking with uh, Junior about confidentiality and also about those health records of pilots. Mm. This is... Uh, and is this related? I was watching Q&A the other night and this was a huge topic of discussion, particularly around the pilot having depression and then depression being linked with the violent act and it really uh, got me frustrated because it seems that this simplistic understanding of the violent act as being attributed to uh, depression really undermines how complex human behavior is and i'm wondering if that's that attribution of blame is actually what is underpinning this idea that we need to disclose all health records and is that warranted, that, that level of attribution? Yeah, there's a great article by, I think it's uh, Greenberg, who's a psychotherapist. He writes for the New York Times. Exactly that point. Right. That, you know, you cannot blame this on uh, on mental illness. The, you know, human behaviour is so complex. Mm. And he uses a beautiful analogy, metaphor. Mm. He says, you know, I, he says, I can no more predict somebody's behaviour then we can predict the weather. Even with great supercomputers and really smart people, we can't predict what's going to happen at one particular mm-hmm. place. At one, but it's not like billiard balls, is mm-hmm. what he says. And then with the media, yeah, you know, having such a huge focus on it, yeah. I think really is uh, adding to the stigmatisation of mental illness and ment- and just, again, as I was saying, undermining that understanding. And we're not really... Are we really trying to understand what led this person mm. to... Uh, crashed hit this plane or are we just trying to find a really quick easy simple answer especially in this case the links um are that um, the media draw are mm. very loose innuendos at best you mm. know um what we do know or what was reported is um the pilot uh 
actually former classmates of the pilot informed the media that he um, had been treated for depression and I quote burnout syndrome back in 2009 mm. and that's that's five years ago mm. you know it's almost like we have this drive to really need to know something we we just really can't sit with the uncertainty of not knowing so we need to come up with some kind of an explanation and some kind of an explanation seems to be better and 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 easier to sit with than not knowing and i don't you also think about doing something because mm. next time i catch a plane it'll be somewhat in the back of my mind mm. you know mm. of you know w- w- what could possibly be happening mm. there's been so many air disasters too recently mm. so yeah it's about trying to do something to contain that anxiety mm. So that, let me just sort of uh, weigh up the pros and cons of, um, I, I suppose, weighing up the sort of um, ethical pros and cons about um, whether um, mandatory reporting, self-reporting, um, should be made mandatory and whether it's actually enforceable. But ultimately, I think the strike rate is going to be, you know, ridiculously low. Could you just take us through, though, first, uh, Junior, about, like, what the... Um uh, requirements are of treating physicians if they come across somebody who they think uh, puts the uh, puts the public at significant risk. What I mean, can, do they have to do anything? That's a very interesting point because um, in the aviation industry, from what I've read, uh, it's really just a contractual obligation to self-disclose. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have not come across anything in the aviation industry that I know of where um, pilots or pilots' peers, for example, um, um, air hostesses um, mm-hmm. or ground staff, mm-hmm. have to report, oh, look, Mr X uh, was on in the air today and he wasn't behaving quite right. I'm mm-hmm. making a notification, mandatory notification. Mm-hmm. In contrast, say with the medical profession, mm-hmm. um, there is a legislative mandatory reporting requirement. And according to the AMA um, Victoria, the Australian Medical Association, um, uh, um, medical practitioners are expected um, to um, report any notifiable conduct um, which places the public at risk because of impairment on the practitioner's part. And this is actually um, grounded in legislation. This is, there, this is actually grounded in the Health Practic- Practitioner National Law Act 2009. So I think we're conflating two things. This is if yes. we've got an, a, an impaired doctor, then it's incumbent upon who's ever treating that doctor to report them to the medical board. That's right. Correct. What about if a pilot came to you, and you, oh, not a pilot, it's somebody else, let's say um, somebody that drives buses, mm-hmm. and um, you form the opinion that this person is a very, very, very uh, high risk to the public. Is it incumbent upon you to report this person to the authorities? Well, no. If the, if the public is at significant risk? I think uh, if um, someone is at significant risk, then yes, that, that would be the case. Um, in, in my sort of day-to-day work as, yeah. as a psychiatrist, on a couple of occasions I've realised that uh, certain people I've been looking after were driving when mm. they frankly should not be. Mm. And, you know, it, and it's such a tricky situation mm. because, um, well, f- firstly, I would never sort of make a notification to Vic Rhodes behind their backs. Mm. I would always discuss it discuss with them. The but it very much places me at a very, very prominent conflict of interest mm. with the patient. Well, I guess what I'm trying to get to is if you form the opinion that somebody was putting the public at grave risk, let's say they were, I don't know, they were a bomb maker, I don't know, something that mm-hmm. put the public at risk, there is an obligation on you to notify the authorities. 
I think so. Yeah. I think so. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So now we're talking about what about the medical notes of this particular um, uh, pilot? The, the, the chatter has been if his notes had been made available to the airline, perhaps that may have thwarted or stopped him flying. That's the, that's the kind of chatter? I think the chatter is um, that it was never really picked up and the pilot obviously didn't self-disclose and um, whoever had been looking after him um, ages ago, five years ago, or even more recently, did not make the notification themselves either. I think subsequently um, prosecutors have been trying to uh, request those notes or in Australian language um, subpoena those notes um, and so far they've had limited success from um, what's background reading I've been doing. They've even gone to the um, extent of um, attending the pharmacy where the pilot lived, uh, sorry, the, the pharmacy in the town where the pilot lived in Germany um, to, to try to find out what medications he'd been dispensed. It's just, uh, it's so full of uh, ethical dilemmas, isn't Absolutely. it, this question? Because uh, it's running on this presumption that we can predict risk and that we can actually, pr- because most, most impulsive actions uh, happen without uh, professionals uh, being able to predict that risk and the decisions get made in the in moment to moment it may have been that this pilot we just don't know he may not have actually gone in with the intention but changed his mind or vice versa we just don't actually know that we know behavior happens in moment to moment as opposed to um you know these notes they may have said that he had a mental illness or he was on medication but we can't uh, you know deduct from that that there's going to be some kind of it's a very grave, long bow isn't it? it is yeah. a very long bow but at the broader issue is should medical notes be ever be made public or be uh, made available to somebody other than the health practitioner and the patient for example should you know uh, couples often uh, when they split up one subpoenas the other's medical notes um, and that is full of complexities mm-hmm. do, I mean do we think that's an ethically good idea think about let's put aside the legal issues at the moment but ethically is it a fair enough thing to say that um, that somebody else can look at these notes that were given to uh, that were taken in confidence good thing bad thing or a thing panel well, it's a very um, individual question because it depends on the individual sort of moral compass or ethical compass. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be inclined to say no, but, you know, I agree with... Um, what why? why would you say no? Why is it a bad thing for somebody, for somebody else to say the medical notes of a patient? Most of the time it probably do more harm than good. How do you mean? Well, so in the case of the domestic dispute, uh-huh. um, they might find out things, uh, uh, material that um, they should not have found out or they probably would be better not finding out and, you know, it might actually make the separation more acrimonious than is necessary mm-hmm. and it might not actually aid to the process. Okay. And again, it's relying on people drawing conclusions from that information. For instance, if there's some kind of medical condition, then that might be used as leverage, as, as an argument that this person is not capable of doing this and that. When we know capacity is it's context dependent it's it's very built around the specific decision or capacity being made so we can have capacity in one area of life uh, and less capacity in another so i think there's the potential when the information when medical information is given to people who aren't medical practitioners or perhaps attuned to the meaning of that information then it's going to get mis misused keep in mind the quality of medical notes vary <laughs> and Don't look at me when you say that. <laughs> quick, where do I look? <laughs> the quality of medical notes vary, right? And uh, 
Doctors are fallible. Sometimes we we get it wrong. We record things incorrectly. As an example, right? Um, say, for example, if we're taking the domestic disputes um, separation um, divorce example, um, and for example, if I'm a psychiatrist seeing my client, mm-hmm. who is one of the people involved in let's the separation, call them a, you're saying A. Let's let's say I'm seeing the husband, mm-hmm. right? A. And husband mentions to me something about a divorce and and something about an affair, mm-hmm. right? And I jot down in my notes just the word affair. Mm. Right, someone else reads it. Is it an affair he was considering? Is it an affair that he had? Is it an affair he is going to have? Mm-hmm. Right, just that one recorded word without mm-hmm. um, the source and the context to check it against. I, I reckon one of the other issues. See, I don't know where I stand on confidentiality of notes. To be honest, I, I don't know. Um, it's not a good. <laughs> not a good sort of ethical standpoint. But there are so many competing interests mm-hmm. because I think one. On, you've also got the point of view that you know if you know that your notes are going to be made public or somebody can subpoena them, you're less likely to seek treatment. I would think, yes. you know, and you're less likely to divulge things which are shameful and embarrassing, and which you could potentially have treated because you think they're going to be recorded, and somebody at some point might subpoena them and shame them or shame you or use them against you. And I think that's a really compelling argument to have the sort of synchro sync. The, sa- the, mm. san- the, san- the sanctity, the sanctity of confidentiality. Mm. On the other hand, <laughs> you know, of course, when the public is at risk or the person is at risk, then you need to um, break that confidentiality. But then there's all the grey stuff in between. Mm. And it comes down to what what are we record keeping in the first place because there's probably um, more emphasis in training and as we're learning as professionals to actually be able to read and understand what is the content of the notes because we know that the content is meant to be about the treat- treatment and the symptoms and what's done and the itty-bitty gritty details around affairs or the very personal details aren't actually required to be documented in the notes for you to be able to communicate what the tra- what treatment is being uh, given. But as you say, we're all fallible, and, um, you know, and especially when you're junior and starting mm. out, you put stuff in the notes that mm. you know may like affair, like the person just says it, and you know mm. what relevance does that have? And if it's not explained, then it can be taken any any which way. Mm. Very very interesting. I think a lot of our discussions today about duty to warn um, really stems from um, this, the, the, the Tarasov's Tarasov. principle. Just tell, that, take um, us through Tarasov. People man. might um, have heard of before. So um, it was in the mid-1970s, I think it was in California, um, a, uh, a medical practitioner was um, uh, reprimanded, well, you know, convicted effectively for um, um, not uh, disclosing um, risk or to harm. Somebody else. So um, the, the doctor was seeing somebody, and um, that person said, "I'm going to kill my girlfriend," huh. and or ex-girlfriend, and he actually did. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was not the, the, the um, disclosure was not made to the relevant authorities, mm-hmm. um, and you know it became a bit of a landmark case. And you know, in legal terms, the sort of um, concept of the Tarasov's principle is really a duty to warn mm-hmm. when there is significant sort of mediated planned risk to others. And we've got such a problem because there's such a low base rate to that as well, in the sense that there's a lot of potential. Uh, people reporting harm to themselves or harm to others, but the actual uh, level of incidence is quite low. And it's incumbent upon the health practitioner to determine when to do that duty of disclosure. Mm. Like, mm. I think the legislation says significant and imminent risk. Gee, I mean, it's hard to predict. As you said, uh, Eva, you know, prediction in, in, uh, of human behaviour is 
very, 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 very hard. I just want to close on um, my uh, a, a comment um, in my mind. I, I feel the, the the poor pilots this week particularly have been yeah. scrutinised and yeah. have copped a really bad rap. Yep. You know, if we're thinking about um, minimising or mitigating um, risk to the public, yep. um, I believe you know any then any occupation that is in any position of power could probably be scrutinized to the yeah, same extent right and sure. be expected to um have confidentially broken on them or um self-disclose or have mandatory self-disclosure so you know that then includes pilots all healthcare workers mm. potentially all law enforcement personnel particularly those carrying weapons and mm-hmm. firearms um judges magistrates um operators of any mass transport yep. um uh, vessel, so trains, trams, cruises, yeah. you know, taxi drivers, you know, even teachers. There would be. It would be. Where does it stop? Is what you're saying. Mm. Where does it stop? That's right. Mm. Yeah. Poor pilots. Poor well, pilots. Love, love the compassion here. Um, you know, we could talk about this forever, and I, I, I was just thinking of two other questions to ask you, but I won't because time is rocking on. We're going to play a sponsorship announcement. I might just say, um, uh, if you do have any concerns about yourself or a loved one or a significant other, head to the Beyond Blue website. Um, they are absolutely fantastic, great resource. Or Lifeline Australia, and the number there is 131114. We're going to be back to speak with Elise Ballew about Mindful in May. 3 Triple R. Elise, welcome back into uh, Radiotherapy. Thank you. Now, um, last time you were on the show, you were, I think, about, you were you were doing relief work after the tsunami. Is that right? Oh, that's right. Yes, that was about 2005. Yeah. And since that time, you've gone to training as a psychiatrist, um, which in itself is very interesting. But perhaps the most interesting thing, I think, to talk about this morning is Mindful in May. Tell us what Mindful May is mindful in may is and then we might get to talk about how it started and so forth sure so mindful in may i started it four years ago and it's an online global annual mindfulness meditation campaign so it aims to teach people and inspire people to learn mindfulness practices online and at the same time um, connect them to a greater cause through inspiring them to get sponsored to raise money to build clean water projects in the developing world so the idea is it's a clear mind for you and clean water for others that's a nice that's a nice connection there so how, how did you come up with that idea i mean were you sitting under a tree and apple fell on your head and you go wow mindfulness in my clean water Interestingly, it does sound a bit cliched, but I did come up with the idea whilst I was meditating one day. Um, it, it just hit me, but it really was a culmination of probably many different passions and interests that had come together over about 10 years. So that was the passion that I had for mindfulness, that I was practicing it for myself and then learning about the compelling research, mm-hmm. supporting its benefits uh, and wanting to teach other people and offer an accessible way for other people to learn. And then that was combined with my real fascination with the internet and social media which was kind of coming into action around 2006 and recognizing that there was a real power there to create community online and then the third element of that was the humanitarian side of things which i'd traveled in west africa about 10 years before that and had been really struck by the global water crisis Hmm. okay so mindful in may is huge but when you first 
spoke to other people about this idea what was their reaction so yeah that's a really interesting point so when i started people didn't get it they were like what i don't understand why why would you you can't do a meditation challenge that's really contradictory (laughs) to meditating it's not about competition and challenge Uh, and then some other points were that does not make sense at all like how does mindfulness and raising money for water relate in any way shape or form don't get it uh they also didn't like the fact that a lot of people were anti the fact that you would get sponsored to so the idea is you take you commit to meditating for 10 minutes a day for the month of may through the supported program and you get sponsored for that and people thought no that's a terrible idea because people won't want to do that because it's too hard to meditate for 10 minutes a day for the month yeah it'll put too much pressure on people and that's not a good idea which i actually listened to someone and didn't do that in the first year so it's been there's been iterations over the last couple of years because what i love hearing is when somebody comes up with a novel idea people diss it automatically Mm -hmm. and say it can't work because of x y and z because i have about 10 wacky ideas a week none of them have ever turned out to be anything close to mindful of me but people have always gone nah that won't work for x y and z so it's reassuring to hear that something as big as mindful of me was at first kind of people i don't know what about this what about that so you started up tell us what happened in that first year when you and 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 basically take us through the program a little bit as well yeah sure i think just before that to also pinpoint or or recognize there that it wasn't just other people's doubts it was actually also myself and i think that's a really important point for anyone that's has a creative idea because that's just part of it the self-doubting this i don't know anything about websites (laughs) uh it just there were so many doubts so i sat with that for about three months before friends which i think is a really important factor in putting creative ideas out there having supportive networks kind of came up to me and said hey it's uh it's january and may's coming around pretty fast you're gonna start (laughs) acting on this or it's gonna be just an idea so anyway so the first year um it was really an experiment i came to it with a very playful experimental attitude i just i i got it online and i had very modest goals i wanted to raise five thousand dollars which would be enough to build one well in ethiopia through the charity that we fundraise for charity water and i thought you know if a hundred people join up that would be fabulous twitter went crazy social media it was all very open and so the first year raised thirty thousand dollars and had nearly a thousand people join up so i was pretty shocked by that and also recognized the power of social media to spread that it was really fun just seeing people tweeting from denmark and switzerland saying oh you know nice australian accent meditating to an australian accent this morning and it was just really exciting having that sense of a global community developing mm-hmm. and that was three years 2012 ago? right so in the fourth year yeah this now. is the fourth year yeah so tell us where we're up to now with mindful and mate so it's it's been growing each year and i think that that's testament to the fact that a lot of people in the world are really thirsty for a way to connect with a, a way to just find more space and sanity yep. in the in the hyperconnectedness that we're living in so it's grown um and over the last number of years basically we've got over 10,000 people doing it each year and we've raised enough money over $300,000 and built clean water projects completed projects in Ethiopia uh, Rwanda and Malawi Mm. Well, so each clean water project costs about $5,000? Oh, it, it changes depending on the year. So this year we're actually raising money for Uganda and they're drilled water projects and they actually cost $18,000. It depends on the landscape and where the type of well. Um, but that well will 
it's, it basically costs about $35 per person to access clean water for life right. through those through those water projects. And do you getting much feedback from participants in the program? Because I'd love to hear what they're noticing uh, from their experience in Mindful in May. What are you hearing? Look, that's been, I mean, apart from the fact that there's water being, water wells being built, which is really satisfying and meaningful for everyone involved, getting the feedback from participants has just been incredibly inspiring and motivating to keep going. I know that 10 minutes of of mindfulness a day over a month is enough to create a significant benefit for people but just seeing that come through over and over people talk about i've had emails come through really quite touching ones there was a few people last year that had actually lost family members through very sudden tragic deaths and one girl said to me she hadn't left the house in about four months she was just suffering so much grief and anxiety and she uh she just fed back that she took her first mindful walk out the house and she was tuning into the the crackling of the leaves under her feet and noticing the wind and so she was actually able to kind of unhook from some of the ruminative thoughts about Mm. the grief and get out of the house for the first time there were other stories um, of people there was one story of a woman who was a main carer for her husband with schizophrenia and she was suffering bipolar and she just said that she'd learnt so many helpful Mm. techniques to just manage the stress Mm. of being a carer so tell us as in a short amount of time because we don't have a lot what actually is mindfulness what is it is it like meditation is it like yoga what is it so mindfulness the word actually comes from the pali language um, called sati which means to remember it derives from Buddhist practices which are about two two and a half thousand years old but it was really brought into the mainstream probably in the 70s by a number of people in America probably the leading name would be John Kabat-Zinn who people can look look up any of his books so it was sort of secularized uh to, to help people to alleviate suffering, which was the uh, original point of the Buddha developing yeah. this whole practice, but now it's just been modernised. And in a nutshell, in its most simple form, it's a form of mental training that helps us to be more present to what's going on from moment to moment within ourselves, so thoughts, emotions, feelings, and also in the external world. And why would that be relevant and important? Because if we can be present to what's happening, then we have more capacity to respond more wisely to what's going on. I remember about 10 years ago, I did the exercise Exercise in a lecture um, where uh, it was a mindfulness lecture, a lecture about mindfulness, and one of the things you had to do was you know eat the raisin, classic one minute to eat a raisin yeah. and smell it, taste it, what's the texture like, just don't gobble them down like we do, and it was a kind of a revelatory experience, like wow. Yeah, <laughs> I actually did that in a class I taught recently. And the woman had a, I didn't realize that one of the women had a sultana phobia, and oh she told me afterwards she goes, I think I just cured my sultana phobia. <laughs> They're not that scary after Speaking all. Speaking of negative experiences, what what kind of advice often you hear people who are, are, are reluctant to sit with their own experience to be mindful, especially the you know the sitting kind of closed eyed meditations can be quite terrifying for some people. What and we've got this concept of backdraft. Once you begin tuning into into your own experiences, then you begin to notice a lot about yourself and your own thoughts and your patterns. What kind of advice or words would you give to people who are a bit reluctant around those? negative experiences that they might face i think it's really important to highlight the fact that like anything it's a skill and it's a practice and you actually need 
good support and teaching. So I think, you know, there are lots of free apps around that are fabulous, but I, I think that uh, particularly for people that might have history of trauma, really mm-hmm. to find a course and, a, and an experienced teacher because with that it's safe and you can build your confidence to actually look in and, and face some of those things. It's like when you're first stuck in a gym, you get a personal trainer just to sort of lead you off so you don't sprain yourself. If you've got any pre-existing injuries, you want to look after those. Yeah. I have not heard that concept before either or that term of backdraft. Um, cognitive backdraft. Yeah, it, it comes from the mindful self-compassion uh, f- frame yeah. and they've got a lot of focus in their training and they teach it quite early on and there's an eight-week course. Uh, they teach this backdraft back back concept quite early on to help people, I guess, anticipate and be aware that, that that's what might happen and to be able to sit with it. Yeah. I'm going to be a bit cheeky and just respond to a couple of things I've heard Elise say. Um, quite rightly so, you know, a um, couple of the um, pioneering um, movements in mindfulness training, mindfulness-based cognitive therapies um, did stem from the sort of northeastern side of North America and Cabot Singh out of Ontario, um, out of um, University of Massachusetts, the Centre of Mindfulness um, Excellence. So a lot of the mindfulness um, experiences that we have had, um, myself, patients, um, you hear the um, mindfulness training tapes, practice tapes, in an American accent. <laughs> so it'll be like, it is normal for the mind to wonder, and when you notice this happening, bring the attention back to the breath. So I'm curious now to know what an Australian a mindfulness leading tape would sound like. Yeah. Would it be something like... Yeah, nah, it's all right. <laughs> Just uh, bring your uh, attention back to the breath, yeah? No worries, mate. No worries, well, that's I'll, it. I'll tell you how you can find that out. You One can, You can join Mindful in May and you can hear for yourself. <laughs> so tell, tell us, Elisa, how do we get on to Mindful in May? It's really simple. You just go to the website, which is mindfulinmay.org. You hit register. You can create your own virtual team with a family or, or your workmates, colleagues. Yeah. Sign up. It's $30 to register, which gets you access to this entire one-month program that gets delivered to your inbox every day. It includes audio meditation downloads and video interviews, exclusive video interviews that I've done with global experts in the field. A lot of them, the people that you're mentioning from America. <laughs> so, But some of the top researchers, Richie Davidson, um, Sharon Zaltzberg, quite a well-known meditation teacher. So you really get a, an integrative experience of mindfulness and then you get sponsored to take the challenge. What a fantastic idea and mm. uh, best of luck with it this year. It's probably going to be, well, not probably, it will be bigger and better, I'm sure, than last mm. year because it just grows every year. Every time mm. I speak to it, it's like double inside it's fantastic so mindfully may hop onto it we are going to come back at you with some more self-compassion thank you so much for coming to the thank studio, you for having Liz. me you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r in melbourne australia you know eva I, I find I am way too hard on myself sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I'm just too hard on myself. I've got a very harsh super ego, as they say in analytic circles. Aren't we all? We all are. And, you know, most of the health practitioners I work with, they are really, really hard on themselves. They are. In fact, I'm not a Buddhist, but in Buddhist language, they speak about the two arrows of pain that uh, we often get shot. The first arrow of, of suffering and pain, which might be something that happens in life that's really awful. And then we tend to be shot with 
with a second arrow or of suffering, which is our own self-criticism or our own self-judgment or our own, this shouldn't be the way it is, our resistance to that pain that we experience. So we talk a lot about how do we not shoot that second arrow? How do we just sit with the inevitable pain of being a human being without shooting that second arrow of, of suffering? Tell me how I stop shooting that second <laughs> arrow right. myself. Well, well, today I thought of all days, given it's Easter, to talk about compassion because Karen Armstrong, who is, she's actually a religious scholar and she speaks on the role of religion in in the modern world she had an excellent ted talk back in 2008 it won a ted talk prize uh, where she was speaking about really what's at the fundamental heart of all religions is compassion this idea that we wouldn't do unto others as as you would do unto yourself Mm -hmm. and so today i wanted to talk about compassion in the context of that but also in the context of last month dr capri was talking about what makes a good doctor Mm -hmm. and um we we talked about the the capacity to build relationships, empathy and compassion, yet our training programs focus so much on the teaching of symptoms and illness and treatments and we don't we kind of is, assume that empathy and compassion happen just spontaneously and innately and it's just something we don't need to practice or learn, it's just something we do. And in I guess my recent work around compassion, I realise that compassion can be trained and we face in many lines of work, whether you're a carer for someone uh, who's not well or whether you're a health professional, and compassion fatigue. And my understanding now around empathy and compassion is I wonder if it's actually empathy fatigue. So, So I wanted to talk a bit about the difference between empathy and compassion. And uh, empathy, as we we know, is the capacity to share feelings with another. So it requires perspective taking. So one of our friends may be going through something, and we can we can really put ourselves in their place, and we feel what they feel. So it's this feeling with another person. And actual the fMRI, the functional magnetic resonance imaging, shows that the, the feelings that are required for empathy are actually the same that get in, ignited in our own experience of pain. Are they the mirror? neurons is the mirror neurons yes in the insula so these actually in order for us to feel empathy we actually have to experience that emotion ourselves and importantly in in our line of work we we try to learn about the other self-distinction so we feel that those feelings of empathy but we know that they're actually the other persons Mm -hmm. but where we fall into trouble is when that gets blurred when we begin to feel this empathy so strongly that it becomes empathic distress we blur the line between our own feelings and others and this is what i think compassion fatigue actually is is this empathic distress that we feel is that your term empathic distress because i love it I no mean, it's, it's no, like the backdraft empathic distress that is just fantastic it's because not it's not my term oh, i can't right. own that one i've stolen that one as well plagiarize it while you can no one's going to call your bluff um, and, and this yeah. empathic distress is often paired with a, a strong aversion and um, an inclination to withdraw or protect oneself yeah. so it can actually um, be quite detrimental to to the therapeutic relationship. Now, compassion, on the other hand, is a feeling for suffering, not feeling of suffering. So it's characterised by feelings of warmth, of concern and care. So it's and, and through this, it's accompanied by a strong motivation to improve ourselves and, our, and other people's well-being. So whilst empathy in empathy we feel suffering in compassion we recognize this suffering and we want to soothe it not to feel better but because we feel bad Uh, is that like sympathy because well i think there's a slight difference i mean what do you think sympathy is so i i I thought empathos 
is mm-hmm. to is to feel what the other person is feeling. So yes. as you say, yeah, yeah. I thought sympathos was to um, feel sorry for. Mm. So that's why I think it's the same as compassion. Feel sorry for somebody's suffering rather mm. than to feel their suffering. Which implies there's this kind of like imbalance of power. I think when we feel sorry for someone, we're like, oh, poor you. And there's this, there's this still this. This not there's not a wish to kind of make the suffering go away. There's not this equal level um, common humanity component, which is very part of compassion. Because sympathy is more, I feel sorry and have a cup of tea. As Brent, I don't know if any of you have seen the Brené Brown. It's a brilliant four-minute clip. It's a cartoon on empathy and sympathy. And sympathy comes in and says, "Oh." have a cup of tea and well you know at least if if someone's struggling through a divorce well at least you are married or if someone's struggling if someone's just had um a miscarriage well at least you can fall pregnant you know that's what sympathy is so so this is bruno brown brene brene brown she's um written and spoken a lot about vulnerability and shame i'm gonna go to the website it's excellent so it's compassion is this very active process where we acknowledge suffering we say oh my gosh here's suffering i'm suffering i've got a moment of suffering right now and then we pair that with an intention of kindness and care towards ourselves so rather than shooting the second arrow of suffering and fighting suffering and saying that we shouldn't feel this way or i should know what i should know better we actually we sit with our suffering in a caring and compassionate way and very importantly we recognize that other people feel this way too that this idea of common humanity i'm not the only one to be suffering from this it's it's this principle of the the problem of one is the problem of many mm, nice i like this yeah so this still doesn't tell me how i stopped shooting arrows at myself <laughs> well i guess mal the, the important thing is that you've noticed that you're shooting arrows at yourself and that's the first point of intervention isn't it yeah to recognize that, that, recognize that yeah. awareness and it can be really hard to develop self-compassion because we're usually very able to bring compassion to our loved ones, but yet when we provide self-compassion, there's this sense that it's wimpy or wussy or, you know, we're being soft on ourselves or we're letting ourselves go because we're such strivers. We try to... We try to motivate ourselves with the with the stick instead of the carrot and in in this sense it's it's trying to decide what's going to serve me better here shooting the second arrow or soothing the pain that acknowledging i'm suffering right now i'm having this awful moment and what can i do to just sit sit with that and make it better do you reckon also that uh, you're talking about empathic distress and empathic mm. fatigue that mm. healthcare providers just see so much suffering that you, you kind of build a wall around that empathy a bit because otherwise you just you know, explode I guess and I think this is part of the problem is that there's such a focus on empathy and we don't even really get trained in how to be empathic we're just expected to well certainly in my training we, we learn how to have how to state different things in different empathic statements and pick up on things but the different but we don't get taught compassion and compassion can be trained and it's a form of mindfulness it's what they call the meta meditations which is the loving kindness meditations so it's this um you know with mindfulness you've got that um on the one hand you've got bringing awareness to the here and now with that non-judgmental stance and on the other hand we've got bringing that the the care and the love and kindness to the experience that you're going through no matter what it is so it's welcoming all experience and and self-compassion is linked to increasing one study actually showed that um people are more inclined to help if they're in a situation where they feel self-compassion compared to empathy so i'm I'm sorry i'm a little confused so 
can you give me an example of that of, of how I, the difference between self-compassion and empathy and so empathy is when we feel the other's emotion yeah. so, so i i feel i f- I understand you'd feel that way because I'd feel upset if you forgot to pick me up from school, if I'm yeah. a kid, for instance. Yeah. So you feel that pain. Yeah, I understand Whereas that. compassion is acknowledging, okay, that's painful, and, and let's tend to that in a caring, soothing way. So what's better for me as a healthcare provider? To- self-compassion, in my opinion. In oh. my opinion. I think cultivating self-compassion is more uh, will promote resilience and is more sustainable than empathy. than empathy. Obviously, we don't want to get rid of both, sure, 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 sure. and empathic statements are incredibly important for building rapport and understanding. But as a clinician, having self-compassion will allow you to sit with and tolerate a lot more emotional distress because you're applying soothing to it. Right rather than taking it on rather as your than own. Ta- exactly. Right. That's, mm. I mean, the issues that um, that therapists, mm. talking clinicians, uh, are familiar with, mm. looking at their experience in the room compared mm. to the patient's experience and what what's a shared experience. Mm. And then what you do is usually as a therapist is you go off and you have supervision where you tell your supervisor about your experiences and discharge to them and they go off to their supervisor and it's just a whole big Absolutely. circle that goes around and around. But so, that's, so, that's so important because that allows reflection. You know, just the other day I saw someone and I felt so incompetent and hopeless and then I realised that, that they were actually feeling incompetent and hopeless so I had confused my feelings with their feelings. But to be able to reflect and to write about it and apply self-compassion allowed me to process those emotions so that I could keep turning towards that person rather than wanting to block them yeah. off or not wanting to see them next week. So being very action-oriented, mm. I'm talking about. So would self-compassion be like not firing that second arrow into myself about having the space to talk about it with somebody else? Would Absolutely. that be the first thing I do? Absolutely. And there's a way that you can train it as well. Just like with mindfulness meditation, you can train yeah. that attention muscle. You can train <laughs> self-compassion. I attention muscle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can train self-compassion. And there are two key people in the area and they have great websites and they have guided meditations that mm-hmm. are free to access and that's Chris Germer and Kristen Neff. How do you spell the surname? Uh, Germer, G-E-R-M-E-R. Mm-hmm. And, and Kristen Neff is N-E-F-F. They've both got separate websites. Uh, it's pretty easy if you Google them. And they have a lot of information about self mindful self-compassion, a lot of the, the current evidence. Yeah, because what I, what I reckon is that what happens with a lot of doctors who are my mates um, is they tend to bottle stuff up. Mm. And rather than talk about it for out of shame or wanting to be, you know, be tough, they just bottle it up. Mm. And that, that is the complete opposite of having this sort of compassionate, mm. reflective time mm. where you can sort of mm. figure out what's yours, what's the patient's, mm. you know, and what kind of compassion you need. Absolutely. Really fascinating. Just very quickly, Eva, um, has there been much research done on self-compassion? There is. It's spurting. Yeah. Not as much as mindfulness-based yeah. interventions, but it's it's growing and there's evidence around um, preventing or promoting resilience against depression, anxiety, mm. improving self-worth, um, improving uh, the capacity to want to help others, uh, so improving gratitude. There's a whole wealth of of evidence in all different areas at the moment, but it's still in its infancy stages, especially compared to mindfulness and other based programs. Mm. Sounds like there's a lot of overlap between there mindfulness is. and self-compassion. They're complementary. You could have a compassion in October campaign mm-hmm. or something. Oh, in or October, com- eh? I'm just trying to think, what's, what, what goes with C? Compassion in C, A, B? Uh, anyway. <laughs> we'll think uh, about that we'll one. That's about about that. I'm not going to just that original idea. We're going to just welcome. Welcome. Thank it. you so much. <laughs> it's been such an interesting show and this hour goes so quickly. Um, I'd like to thank Junior for 
coming into the show. And June, you'll be back with us next week on uh, Radiotherapy next Sunday morning as well. Looking forward to it. So am I, mate. Thank you so much, Elise, for coming in. Best of luck with Mindful in May. Thank you. Um, we're really looking forward to, uh, to, to squizzing, having a good squiz at the website this year and uh, joining up. And thank you also to Dr. Eva Green. Wonderful to hear that I can not shoot a second arrow into myself. We'll work uh, on that. <laughs> and you and I are going to have a website. <laughs> Self-compassion in October. Stand by for the Einsteiner Go-Go team. They are ready to go for an hour of science power. See you next Sunday morning. Triple R listener, Adam Bloom. Hello, Triple R. I have to say, I listened to you on a long car journey the other day. I found it a very enjoyable station. You are the coolest station. Triple R. Like Rolls Royce with an extra R because you're so... This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.